Hello and welcome to the 22nd episode of Outside the Screen, a podcast all about screens in the lives of children and families. I'm law professor and child rights advocate Liz Hansley. And I'm child psychiatrist and stand-up comedian Dr Kim Lee. We're bringing you the podcast because we know just how hard it is to raise kids in a technology-centric world and we want to help. What have we got lined up for today, Liz? Today on the show, you're going to hear an interview with a British researcher who's looking at youth socialisation in a gaming context with a special focus on autism and a review of a recent Australian film about motor racing that I hadn't heard of before, but it's kind of interesting. Anyway, before all of that, first up, we've got Paper Round, our regular segment where we look at the research that's coming out, really analyse it to help you and your family in making decisions in your household. Today, we're discussing some Chinese research about loneliness and smartphone addiction. Does the internet really keep us that connected? Mm-hmm. Are we more distant, disconnected and lonely than ever before, than any other generation ever? Stay tuned to find out. As Kim said today in Paper Round, we're looking at some research out of China about the connection between loneliness and smartphone addiction in adolescence. Kim, why'd they do this research? Well, we all just came out of a global pandemic. This idea of isolation, quarantine was meant to protect us physically from harm, but so many of us experienced the psychological and mental harm from being isolated. And frankly, many of us felt were lonely. Mm, yeah. So how'd they go about doing the research? What was the method? The researchers did what we call a systematic review. They looked at 21 studies with almost 30,000 teenagers involved across three countries, and they looked at the data. And that's a really strong kind of research, isn't it, when you get a whole lot of different studies and put them all together. So that's going to be really interesting to hear about what they find. They found that the more lonely you were, the more likely you were to become addicted to social media and the internet. Right. Okay. So they were looking at whether loneliness leads to internet use rather than the other way around. Well, I guess it goes both ways, doesn't it? Mm, The more time you spend online, we were forced to do all of our work online. It means that we're going to be isolated. You Mm. know, I definitely find that having a telehealth practice that I do kind of miss seeing people in the corridor and having water cooler conversations. And there's only so many times you can go and walk your dog to get some fresh air. But they had some really interesting theories about why teens in particular might become lonely in adolescence, a Uh very important time of our development, as they start to become more distant from their parents and have to navigate social relationships. Mm. If you don't end up making those connections in high school, this can lead to loneliness. During the pandemic, schools around the world started closing up. Mm-hmm. The classrooms migrated online. And you might learn algebra on Zoom, but you're missing out on all those small interactions by sitting next to your classmate or having lunch with a friend. Yeah. Also, teenagers are more likely to express their feelings of loneliness online nowadays. Mm. So if we agree that our devices and screens are potentially addicting in nature, then increased interactions with these mediums during the pandemic and, you know, since then we've all sort of gotten used to that sort of lifestyle. Mm. If you're spending more of your school life online during a period of time where your frontal lobes are really still yet to fully develop 
then some kids will fall through the cracks. Mm. And what can that look like when they fall through the cracks? Well, if you're wanting to seek more connection, then you might go onto social media or video games to get that same feeling of being connected or being on a team with others. And that can replace those face-to-face interactions. But really, how good are those interactions? What kind of quality are those interactions? Mm. Yeah, and what are the risks associated with them? Because if you're turning to team-based gaming online to get your social connection, then there's other stuff that can come out the other end of that that might not be great for your mental well-being either. Yes, and that definitely comes down to that other interview that we're going to go through Mm-hmm. In today's episode, is that right? Yep. We're talking about socialization, yep. autism, and gaming. So yes. that's a nice little segue. <laughs> it is, absolutely, yeah. Do you think there's a danger that this kind of research or this finding could be distorted or oversimplified in the way it's been reported? Well, I guess we have to assume that loneliness is a universal emotion. And it's kind of like saying, is there a connection between sadness and social media addiction? I do believe that feeling lonely can be a normal feeling. Sadness can be a normal feeling. And I guess it's about how lonely is lonely mm. in the scheme of things relative to what you're used to. Yeah, that's right. And what kind of resilience do you have and what kind of tools do you have? What kind of support do you have to move beyond the loneliness or you know, learn from it and get to the next stage? And everybody has a different situation in that regard. So it's always a bit of a danger to generalise from just what was found in one particular study. But then again, if you've got 30,000 people, then that, that does seem to be telling you something about generalities. This finding, is it going to affect your practice as a psychiatrist, do you think? I think uh, certainly from my experience working as a telehealth psychiatrist, even before the pandemic, as we went into the pandemic, I saw the kids from those states where their lockdowns were longer Mm. more isolated kids in rural Victoria, they suffered the most. They, yeah. They're the ones who missed out on their footy matches, their netball clubs, and that was really key to their mental well-being. Yeah. And coming back to the question of loneliness, how does that play out in your practice? To be honest, loneliness is not something as a psychiatrist we really ask about. Mm-hmm. It's not something that we would use diagnostically. Right. I think some loneliness, like I said, is considered normal. Mm. Being able to be with your own thoughts is considered normal. But social withdrawal and isolation, mm-hmm. a reason for loneliness, right, is considered abnormal. So mm. you want to stay away from being away from people due to clinical depression or social phobia and do something about that. Yeah. Okay, good. So um, how can it inform parenting or caring for children? Some loneliness and the ability to sit down with your own thoughts is normal, but avoid social withdrawal like the plague. Okay, yeah. So what? how would you identify or recognise social withdrawal when it's happening? It's all relative, right? So some people will comment to me after a period of treatment, oh, we've got our child back. Huh. They're coming out, talking to us. They're more interactive. Mm. They're engaging. Right. It's very much a descriptive relative to what your child is normally like. And look, maybe your child, their baseline is quite introverted and you haven't really noticed it. Mm -hmm. So really pay attention, try to engage and make it part of your family values, you know, face-to-face time, dinner time, Mm -hmm. going out on play dates. You know, I, I really do believe that the coffee following my swim training 
with my teammates is just as important as the time I spend in the pool. It's the it's the social interactions. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. And that thing about keeping an eye on your child and noticing any changes, that's something that you hear over and over again in parenting advice and research and so on, isn't it? It's not just at some sort of absolute level that you're looking for. You're looking for changes over time because you know your child, you know what he or she was like last year and you can look at how your child's going this year and, and what changes there are and trust your gut, I suppose, as to whether those changes are something that you should be concerned about. And um, if so, there's plenty of ways you can seek help. Well, there were a couple of pretty interesting tips from Kim about how to keep children connected and away from the psychiatrist's door. The paper was by Mengwei Gi and colleagues, and the title is The Relationship Between Loneliness and Internet or Smartphone Addiction Among Adolescents, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. It was published in the journal Psychological Reports, full details in the show notes. Now it's time for our movie review, and Anne is going to tell us why Go is recommended for children aged 10 and up. some information from the CMA review of Go. I'll tell you what the movie is about and what elements led the reviewers to recommend it for children aged 10 and up, as well as some suggestions for things in the movie you might want to discuss with your kids. 15-year-old Jack and his mother Christy leave their Sydney home behind for a fresh start in a little country town in Western Australia. The local attraction is a go-kart racetrack run by a notoriously moody and withdrawn man named Patrick. Soon after his arrival, Jack discovers not only his passion, but also his talent for motor racing. However, in order to beat the local champion and bully, Dean, he needs help. Unexpectedly, Dean's sister Mandy, Jack's clumsy but loyal mate Colin, and eventually Patrick, a former successful race driver himself, come to his aid. Will Mandy's engineering talent and innovation, Colin's moral support and Patrick's monosyllabic but priceless advice be enough to help Jack become the national go-kart champion? And will Jack be able to overcome his grief for his deceased dad and beat his tendency to act recklessly and risk too much? The themes of the movie are coming of age, motor racing, competitiveness, weighing up risks teamwork, friendship, first love, working through grief and self-reflection. There is some violence in this movie, including where Dean punches Jack in the stomach and Colin pushes one of the bullies. There are also some threats and verbal abuse. In addition to the above-mentioned violent scenes, there are some aspects of the movie that could scare or disturb children under the age of five, For example, the thought that Jack's dad died of cancer when Jack was 11 may upset children in this age group. There are recurring eerie slow-motion flashback scenes of young Jack and his dad driving and doing donuts in a car. Special effects make the dad turn into a disrupted and flashing holographic display. Children aged 5 to 8 could become upset by the sight of Jack struggling with his grief, acting recklessly, crying and verbalising how much he misses his dad and that he cannot imagine never seeing him again. 
Another revelation that could upset this age group is the reason Patrick stopped racing. That is, he recklessly caused a friend to have a fatal crash in a race. The CMA reviewer noted no product placement in the movie and also no nudity, sexual activity or substance use. There are a few low-level sexual references and also some instances of coarse language, such as, it pisses me off, we're screwed, and their shit is much better than our shit. Go is an Australian coming-of-age racing drama packed with positive role models and messages. Revolving around teenager Jack, the movie appeals to a tween and teenage audience. The excellent cast, great soundtrack and somewhat predictable yet heartwarming story make Go a movie worth watching for families with tween and teen children. The main message from this movie is that you cannot escape emotional baggage. Instead, it's important to work through it with the help of family and friends. Another strong message is that it's okay for boys and men to show emotions and to talk about their fears. The movie also demonstrates that reckless behaviour is dangerous and it's worth being patient and level-headed rather than pushing too far and taking too big a risk. Values in this movie that parents may wish to reinforce with their children include self-reflection, admitting to mistakes and apologising, reaching out to people and asking for forgiveness, accepting help, not regarding it as a weakness to show emotions, being a good sport and stepping out of one's comfort zone to stand up for oneself. This movie could also give parents the opportunity to discuss with their children the real-life consequences of some of the attitudes and behaviours depicted. For example, Jack repeatedly steals his mum's car, drives around town without a licence and does wheelies. He gets away with stern warnings from his mother and the local police because they understand that he is acting recklessly as a reaction to his unprocessed grief. It has to be acknowledged, however, that in real life this sort of action would most likely have much more severe consequences and that driving without a licence is highly irresponsible and poses a huge risk to oneself and others. Patrick's tale of having pushed too hard during a race and accidentally causing a teammate to have a fatal crash can be used as an example that taking unnecessary risks can have dire consequences. During one race, Jack pushes too hard and ignores his team's advice. As a result, instead of securing a safe second place, he ends up crashing and missing out on qualifying for the national competition. Mandy is extremely disappointed and declares that he has let down the entire team, providing a useful lesson in the consequences of selfish behaviour. Go is available on two popular streaming platforms, and the CMA reviewers recommend it for children aged 10 and up, parental guidance for 6 to 9. For children under 6, best find another movie. There is a more detailed review of this and hundreds of other movies on the CMA website. And when Anne talks about the CMA website, that's www.childrenandmedia.org.au. You can find the reviews by clicking on the Movie Reviews tab, and then you can sort the list or search in a few different ways. You can do it by title alphabetically, by age suitability, by classification, or by date added. All of the reviews are prepared by people with training in child development and they cover every G and PG title released in Australian cinemas since 2002 
as well as selected M-rated movies and some pre-2002 ones that are available on streaming services. The website also has reviews of game-style apps and apps that may appeal to young children. Again, it's www.childrenandmedia.org.au. You might also like to join the CMA Facebook community, facebook.com forward slash Australian Council on Children and the Media, or one word, and we'll give more details later on how to keep in touch and give feedback. Now it's time for our special guest. Liz recently caught up with Simon Olianik about his doctoral research on gaming, socialization, and neurodiversity. So I'm here with Simon Olianik, whose paper we discussed in episode 13. He was an author of that paper. Uh, and we're now going to find out a little bit more about what he's up to. He's currently undertaking a PhD on socialization and well-being outcomes in autistic and neurotypical gamers uh, online and offline. So there's a few different things going on there. Let's uh, find out some more about what Simon's up to. So Simon, how much do we already know about the differences between gamers with autism and neurotypical gamers? There's a few similarities between them, but there's also a few differences. So there's pretty much an overlap in what uh, exactly the outcomes are. So there's positives and negatives to that. Mm -hmm. In terms of positives, there's obviously the kind of socializing aspect to it. The fact that people pick up video games to meet new people, to meet new friends, to interact with others online. And this happens for both neurotypical and autistic people alike. Okay. There's also the aspect of something that we call cognitive stimulation. Mm -hmm. So the fact that video games seem to boost your cognitive abilities, they make you a bit more alert, they make you pick up on, on things you wouldn't otherwise pick up on. And if we go back to something like brain age, that does in fact improve your cognition. There's also the negative aspect of it, which seems to center around the kind of emotional dysregulation, so to say. So, for example, my paper found that indeed violent video games do increase your chances of being verbally aggressive and hostile. Mm -hmm. uh, and this seems to be echoed in the neurotypical and autistic literature. What we're not sure about, though, is how exactly these video games are used. And this is where the kind of autistic people shine, so to say, because mm -hmm. what was found by some researchers is that autistic people use video games for a very specific reason. Mm. One of the motivations there is to feel a bit more independent. So okay. they use video games as a medium of something they can do without the carer's help or without help of anyone external. They mm -hmm. can just keep to themselves, enjoy the hobby as they are. Would we normally expect that people with autism would experience less independence in their day-to-day -day life than neurotypical people would? Certainly, yes. It will mm -hmm. be dependent on the degree of autism because autism mm. as a whole is a spectrum. Yeah. But yes, autistic people do rely on, on carers and external support. Right. Okay. So what are you hoping to add to all those understandings with your research? The first and the massive thing that we found when reviewing the literature was that a lot of studies on well-being and socialization were conducted under COVID. Yeah. It's good because it gives us quite a unique insight into gaming, maximizing the amount of exposure. Yeah. And here we're, we're thinking, well, do these studies hold? Will they actually live up to their promises and will they be replicable on the kind of everyday scenarios? Yeah. 
what we're also hoping to find and to kind of add to the existing knowledge base is some more understanding into the diagnostic criteria of both autism and gaming disorder. Yeah. Uh, gaming disorder is relatively new. It's only been introduced to the ICD-11, the WHO Diagnostic Manual. Mm-hmm. It's still not recognized by the DSM, which I believe is the a bit more mainstream diagnostic manual that clinicians use. Okay. One of the diagnostic criteria that's shared between autism and gaming disorder is high engagement. Yeah. Uh, the way you you can usually tell these apart is whether that engagement is debilitating or not. Yeah. In terms of gaming disorder, it would be quite disabling. It would disable you from everyday functioning. Mm-hmm. It would replace all of the interactions that you have with everyday life. Mm-hmm. Whereas with autism, it might not be the case. It just might be that specific, very niche focus uh, that an autistic person is fixated upon. Mm-hmm. But it might not carry these negative consequences. And what we're thinking of there is if this is not entirely clear to the clinician, that might lead to a false diagnosis being provided and wrong support being given. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what we want to do is look at the neurotypical and autistic samples, see how they exhibit their behaviours within gaming, how these impact well-being and socialisation to hopefully get some recommendations in place. Hmm. Right. So well-being and socialization are obviously pretty important concepts there. What what do you mean by socialization? How would you define that? What we mean by socialization is how we interact with other people, the likelihood of interacting with other people, the confidence, the self-esteem that comes across there, uh-huh. um, and just the ease of interacting, which kind of taps into mm-hmm. how easy it is to interact online versus offline. Okay, great. So there's that. And there's also well-being, which obviously is a really interesting concept too. And I think that's probably going to come out a bit more when I ask you my next question, which is what are the experiments going to be that you've got in mind or that you've already started on? So we have a couple of experiments in the pipeline. One of them is pretty much ready to be disseminated. The other one is in the design stages. The one that we've prepared is basically an online survey that will serve two purposes. It's going to be a cross-sectional study and then a longitudinal study. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll we'll administer some well-being questionnaires that will tap into how the person is feeling with their mental health overall. Then we'll use some uh, socialization questionnaires to tackle that socialization part, social interactions. We'll do that for both offline and online interactions to see whether there's there's the differences between them. In addition to that, we'll be collecting video game data. Uh, so we'll be asking the participants what video games they've played in the past two weeks, for how long, what the genre was, what the age rating was, and we'll cross-reference that with the well-being and socialization data to see if we can pick up on any patterns. Mm. And just as an extension to build up on my published paper, we'll throw in aggression to the mix, see if if anything comes out there. Mm. The other experiment that we have in the pipeline, it will basically come out as we get the longitudinal data in. What we're thinking of doing is looking at the difference between offline and online interactions. For this, we'll use mixed reality. Uh, So what we're thinking of doing is having our participants in a room uh, with a mixed reality headset that will allow you to see the room, but would also allow you to see a virtual object within that room. Hmm. So what we wanted to see is whether the interactions would be any different 
if we spawned in a virtual avatar of another player mm-hmm. and had the person interact with it versus if it was, let's say, a 3D model of someone's body uh, right. that they would interact with. Okay, so what do you think you'll find out? So we're hoping to reproduce some past results, mm-hmm. certainly to to see the, the positive impact of video games, the kind of more empowering side of it, perhaps to be a bit more realistic, some some negatives as well, especially when it comes to verbal aggression, perhaps a bit of desensitization as well. And I gather from what you've been saying that you would expect to see different levels of that effect based on whether people have been gaming online or offline and whether they've got autism or they're neurotypical. Is that the sort of mix of different factors that you're going to be looking at? Yes, hopefully. We're kind of hoping to see the different classifications of a gamer and the different factors that might influence how their well-being is influenced by video games, Mm -hmm. but also how their interactions are shaped by them. And in line with the autism literature, what we're hoping to see there is that video games have an overall positive impact on both of these outcomes in addition to that feeling of independence that would eventually lead to greater well-being. Mm -hmm. So here's my last question and possibly the most important one from the point of view of the listeners to this podcast. How will the work that you're doing help parents of the two different groups of gamers that you're looking at, that is gamers with autism and uh, neurotypical gamers? Initially, when we were drafting up the proposal, we thought of stakeholders as these massive entities like government organisations, healthcare settings that would allow us to make big impact. But when we went along, we realised that there's actually much more remit in communicating this to the general public, like parents. Mm -hmm. And we want to raise awareness amongst parents that video game use even if it's a bit extended and it's a bit out of what we would normally suggest is normal, might not be debilitating. It's just about striking the right balance between healthy video game use and unhealthy video game use. So specifically what what we want to do there is raise awareness within parent communities to recognise the signs of unhealthy and kind of malicious video game use and in case, in case of autistic parents, how to tell apart healthy from unhealthy. Mm. Um, it's quite obvious to think that because autism is recognised through extensive engagement with something that's quite obsessive, so to say, mm. um, parents might become a bit worried about their child using video games a bit too much. Whereas if we look at autism specifically, it might be that it's just that person's niche interest that they really care about. And if it's taken away from them, it might cause some issues. So you should come out with some quite detailed advice for parents about what sorts of things they should be on the lookout for when it comes to their children starting up as gamers. Indeed, what we want to eventually achieve with this PhD is to offer a set of recommendations to different people. Mm -hmm. We want to make recommendations to clinicians on how to revise their diagnostic criteria for both gaming disorder and autism. Mm. We want to tackle recommendations for policymakers into how best support uh, these two populations. 
And we also want to make a set of recommendations for parents mm-hmm. on how to recognize these signs and how, how to communicate with their children on a bit more transparent manner that would allow them to support their children as best they can. Yeah, well, let's keep an eye on what you find and um, maybe uh, get you back on the show when you've completed all of this and you can communicate directly to the listeners on what you've found. We'll be very happy to do so. That's great. Lovely. Well, look, nice talking to you, Simon. And thanks for making the time. And uh, we'll get on with the next part of the podcast now. Perfect. See you later. Bye. Hi, listeners. Liz here. Just before we sign off, I wanted to let you know that if you want to hear Kim's thoughts about the things that Simon and I were discussing, we've created some bonus content about that. You can definitely access it on Substack. I'm pretty sure it will roll out onto the other platforms. uh, But as you know, this is a little bit new to me, so I'm not entirely sure. We'll wait and see about that, but I'll keep you posted. And um, as always, we'd love to hear what you think too. If you do have a listen. Well, that's about all we have time for today. Yes, that's a wrap for episode 22. We'd love to have your feedback, so please get in touch. If you're a subscriber on Substack, you can leave a comment there. Otherwise, you can contact us through Facebook or Instagram. Just search for Outside the Screen Pod, all one word, or you can email us at Outside the Screen Pod at gmail.com. You can also catch up on all things gaming addiction on Kim's website, cgiclinic.com, and even book an appointment for him to assess your child. Or if you really like us, you can help by subscribing to the show on your listening platform and or Substack. It's worth doing both because on Substack, you get an email when a new episode drops and there is other news. And you can also join our listener community. Details are in the show notes, along with a range of further info about things we've been discussing. We'd also love if you could please spread the word about the podcast among your friends and colleagues. Finally, you can rate and review us on your listening platform to make it easier for others to find us. And this this has been been the team from Outside the Screen. See you next week.